Welcome back to the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Geary. As a child of the 80s, the Transformers were a part of the culture and reality. They were a Japanese toy line turned TV show turned movie equals marketing genius. The Transformers were robots that could transform into something else, vehicles, weapons, even animals. And as a kid, they were pretty awesome as your single toy could then change into something else. With the twist of a head, the bending of a limb, the folding of a torso, your robot transformer was another toy to add to your arsenal. And the scenarios during playtime were endless as you lived out the battles between the Autobots and the evil Decepticons. And like most 80s toy lines, the marketing did its job. Kids loved them, parents fought over them in toy stores before Christmas, before there was something known as Black Friday. And everyone singing their catchy theme song, Transformers, more than meets the eye. Paul's writing to the Philippian church, a people who have been transformed by their faith. They were transformed when they were born again in Christ, being turned from sinners into saints by their faith in his work on the cross. They were being transformed into Christ's image, being made more like him, sanctified to think more like Christ, act more like Christ, talk more like Christ. They were transforming the world around them, lights in darkness, bringing the hope of the gospel to a world in desperate need of Jesus. And an ultimate transformation awaited when they would be glorified as they were called home to heaven one day, this mortal body being transformed into a heavenly one. These Christians were transformers, and there was more than met the eye. Last time on the podcast, we looked at the prize, the upward call in Christ Jesus, Paul sharing about all he had left behind to follow Christ, counting it as rubbish because what he had found in Jesus was so much better. And he had embraced knowing God, something that was not possible under the law he had once lived under. And the freedom he had found in Jesus to forget what was behind and reach forward to that which is to come. Set free from the sin, the guilt, the condemnation and bondage of the past, to press toward the things that God had for him in Christ in this life and in that which was to come. We continue on this episode with Paul encouraging them to their transformation and noting those who were in opposition to the Christian walk and the confident promise of an ultimate transformation that awaits when we meet Jesus one day. Join us as we finish up in Philippians chapter 3. At our last look in Philippians 3, Paul was declaring that though he had come to trust in grace instead of his own works to be righteous before God, this by no means meant that he was in cruise control when it came to the Lord. He wasn't shrugging his shoulders saying, well, Jesus paid it all, so I owe him nothing. On the contrary, Paul realized that Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. And while he could never earn his salvation or work harder to make God love him more, His desire was to apprehend all that Christ had won for him on the cross and to live fully devoted to God. We saw last time in Philippians 3, verses 12 through 14. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul had a new lease on life in Jesus and was giving 110% toward Christ. But Paul knew that not all had come to that point in their faith of abandoning God. Not all were sold out for Jesus. And yet it was his desire for them to come to that same passionate pursuit of the things of God. As Paul goes on in verses 15 through 16, we start here today. 
Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. As many as are mature. There's a maturing process of those who are born again in Jesus. Peter put it this way in his first epistle, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. For many, when they first get saved, they have tasted that God is gracious. That is news to them. They've never heard it before. They always thought and believed and understood things differently, that there was some cosmic scale out there, a balance to weigh things on. And their philosophy was that they just had to keep their good deeds a little weightier than their bad ones, and then God would accept them, right? A false sense of security and hope, since there's no one good, no, not one. Or they thought that they just had to please God, but never felt that they could, because deep down they knew that they were always messing up at some point along the way. So the gospel was truly good news to them. They tasted the Lord is gracious, something they never knew before, but upon tasting it, they were all in. We got a Costco card, and I was so looking forward to the samples, but of course, we got it during COVID, and no samples were given. But those samples, if I can remember back to the day when my parents had a Costco card, I tell you, they know what they are doing, because you taste it, and you just want a second one. I mean, they have bite-sized down to an art with their samples, just enough to whet your appetite, but never enough to satisfy you. Erin has some dietary restrictions, and there are certain samples that she won't have, like if there's dairy in them. But in the past, when we went to those places and they had samples, if there was a sample I really wanted more of, I will have her get one too. Or sometimes I'll even be as bold and a little deceptive to ask for two samples, one for me and one for my wife, I'll say. And of course, when I take it to her, she turns it down because it has dairy. So, well, I don't want to waste that sample. So I go ahead and enjoy it myself. The samples are too small and just not enough. To, they're just enough, actually, to make you want more. The grace of God, that first taste, and you want more. And Peter says to drink it up. It's healthy. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. There are growth spurts that should come as babes in Christ, as we consume his word and crave and fill ourselves on the things of God. Even the writer of Hebrews acknowledges that there is a maturing that needs to take place, writing in Hebrews 6, 1 through 2. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. That writer was challenging believers who were experiencing stunted growth. In fact, some of them were even doing the Benjamin Button thing and getting younger again, going backwards, going back to the law. But the writer says, let's not lay again the foundational things. Learn those things, then move on, build upon them. It happens sometimes in church that we are still hearing how to get saved over and over again. And the gospel should be preached for sure. The cross and death and the resurrection should probably make their way into every sermon. But I've been in a church or two at, at times, usually as a visitor, and I think, I'm pretty sure everyone here is saved based upon the message that they're preaching. It's the elementary things once again. And granted, most teachers know their audience, and there are some who have never yet grasped that and need to repeat the basics to them. 
Erin was always frustrated when she taught freshman English in high school, when her ninth graders would be expected to write essays and term papers, and when she would talk about nouns and verbs, they didn't know what she was talking about. So she'd have to go back to the basics again and not assume anyone knew the parts of speech, reiterating the basics once again. I got saved at about 12. But I don't think it was until I was in college that I really started to articulate what I believed in or to be able to articulate it. I mean, when I shared with friends in high school, I could talk about Jesus a bit and pretty much it was, let me invite you to church and the preacher will tell you what I believe. I remember in college doing a devotional and it had what was called the Romans Road, walking you through the gospel using key verses in Romans. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the the glory of God recognizing there on that first point that we are all sinners. The next stop on the Romans road, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Emphasizing that my sin deserves punishment, but that there is a free gift offered. Next on the Romans road, Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's showing his love to us while we were still sinners, providing the sacrifice. Then on the Romans road, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made into salvation, telling us we must trust and surrender ourselves to the Lord. And then the last stop on the Romans road, Romans 10, 13, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We can have assurance of our salvation when we trust in Jesus. I mean, when I read that in college, the Romans Road, that was deep theology to me. Like, that was a lot of theology I was not able to articulate. I knew I knew Jesus. I knew I was saved. But I didn't really quite know all the depths of it. And I had been Christian for close to a decade. But the elementary things were things I was still trying to grasp. It finally made a lot more sense when I went on my first missions trip, right after high school, when I went on a short-term outreach to Europe for the first time. And in the vacation Bible school that we had, we called it Camp Aloha because we were all from Hawaii on our team, we did something called the Wordless Book. It was pretty simple. Five colors, black, red, white, green, and gold. No pictures, just blank pages, each one filled with a color. Black, red, white, green, and gold. And each day at our Vacation Bible School at Camp Aloha, we focused on one of the colors, black. Black, it focused on sin, sin that separated us from God and resulted in death. Red, Jesus's blood, which was sacrificed for us, his perfect sinless blood. White, by grace through faith, we can be forgiven and made white as snow. Green, Growth, like the leaves of a tree, there's growing to do as a Christian while I read and pray in fellowship with God by his Holy Spirit and with his people. And finally, gold, the streets of gold in heaven, the promise of the resurrection and the future hope we have in God. I'm a pretty visual learner, so the five colors made a ton of sense to me. And to be honest, it was as we were teaching five to eight-year-olds the wordless book, those five colors, and making beaded bracelets to give to them, each bracelet with five beads, one bead for each color, That's when I finally was able to articulate the elementary things of the gospel. The basics are good. The basics are necessary. The basics are simple enough that a child can understand. But many do not know the basics nowadays, which is hard to watch. Because the deception is so great. 
And many get swept away because they have no foundation. They don't exactly know what it is that they believe. But we need to move on from the basics. Paul was a bit frustrated that the believers in Corinth seemed to be stunted in their spiritual growth. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 and 2. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able. What was most disappointing to Paul was to see that their behavior and obedience to Christ was still childish in Corinth. There were major discipline issues and obedience issues, and Paul just knew that if they would dig in and grow, things would be different there in their individual lives as well as in the church. Hoping for better things in Philippi, we look again at verse 15 through 16, and we pick up here today. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. There were some who, like Paul, had a mature understanding of the things of God. They had let go of the trifle, temporal things of this life, and a transformation had taken place. They had grown up. When we lived in Slovenia, our church was full of young families. Marriages, births, and baby dedications were a pretty regular thing. On one of our last trips back, they had all turned into teenagers. Now, they weren't exactly all mature, these kids that we had left now as teenagers, but they had indeed matured. They grew some inches, their voices deepened, they had transformed from these little kids to young adults. Some of them were even leading worship in the church. So weird, but so cool. For the mature, Paul encourages them to have this mind. The mind that forgets what's behind and reaches forward to that which is ahead. To be dedicated to Christ. And I love Paul's heart here, because there was no judgment or pride or arrogance in this. He bred no division, starting an us-and-them club in Philippi. We're the mature ones, you guys over there, you've not yet arrived. No. He encourages these more mature believers in humility, saying to the less mature, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Paul acknowledged that it was God who was going to mature them, not him and not anyone else. And the more mature group in church, it was not up to them to whip those whippersnappers into shape. They were not to lord over the others and to build camps. Paul was confident that the Lord would reveal to them all the things that they still thought differently about. Man, this takes faith. To trust the Holy Spirit to work in the life of another, whether that be in a friend or a spouse or a child or someone you are ministering with or discipling, to let go and believe in faith that God will reveal what needs to be revealed in order for their transformation to take place. Sometimes we can be so adamant and well-meaning. If you would just do what I tell you, you'll be fine. But we're not the Holy Spirit. And obedience that comes from us forcing it on someone else, it's not transformation. It's oppression or legalism. And get that weaker or less mature brother or sister out of our midst. Nothing we were trying to get them to do will stick because they were depending on us to keep them in line, us to hold them up, us to point them in the right direction. You've probably had someone try to play the Holy Spirit in your life, but it wasn't until God revealed something to you did it finally make a difference, and you began to act accordingly, to walk in obedience. Paul, at this point, truly realized that he could do nothing. His hands were tied, more or less literally, because he was under house arrest in Rome, chained to a Roman guard. He could do nothing to whip these less mature Philippians into shape. But God could. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. 
But to those who had some level of maturity, Paul says, nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Don't slow down or be distracted because not everyone around you is walking at the same pace. Keep pursuing Christ fully. Others will see and be spurred on by your example. I love the scene in the movie Forrest Gump when he starts running across America and all these random people join in, starting to jog alongside of him. Not sure where he's headed or why, but he inspired them so they join in. Let your pursuit of Christ do the same. To the degree that we've already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. And while Paul never heard of Forrest Gump, and you may never have watched Forrest Gump because it's PG-13, Paul continues on with this image of walking. Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Paul put himself out there as an example, one who was following Christ wholeheartedly. It's important for us to have good examples in our lives. Those who place, those people that we place around us, that we're going to become more like them. Peer pressure was not something we just dealt with in high school. We will usually become more like those that we're spending time with. We were discussing with a friend recently that is a believer. We pretty much have two types of friendships. One type is fellowship. It's those godly people around us, those who are doing life with us to draw us closer to Jesus. Their faith inspires us, their words encourage us, their examples challenge us. Paul offered himself in that way to the Philippians, saying, Join in, guys. He was doing a Forrest Gump. Follow my example and note those who so walk, you have us for a pattern. But the other type of friendships we have as believers, they usually end up being ministry. As much as we just want to let down our guard and have them as as friend friends in our hearts, we know we'll always have to have the Lord keeping us in check so that we're going to have a greater influence on them than they're going to have on us. And while we may share many aspects of life with them and build a friendship, there are parts of us that they do not understand. And when we want to be accepted and liked and fit in with them, we never fully will. And we need to keep ourselves anchored in fellowship to make us the least bit effective and influential in the lives of those who don't know Jesus. we got to have balance. Those that we fellowship with have to outweigh those that we have friendship with or ministry to. Paul encouraged his friends in Philippi, look around. You have us for a pattern. The word pattern there is typos in the Greek. We get the word type in there or typewriter. Now, for some of our younger listeners, if you don't know what a typewriter is, you may need to Google it with your parents' permission. But if you've ever used an old typewriter, when you hit the letter key, the little hammered template with the letter swings forward and hits the page. It types by leaving the impression of the letter on the paper. Think of the printing press, that metal cut out of a letter being pressed down and leaving its type on the page. That's the word here for pattern, the type. And people leave an impression on us too. And you leave an impression on others. We make an impression on them. We imprint upon them. We write all over their lives. Paul encouraged them to find people to be with who would type on them, leave the pattern on them, and make them more like Jesus. The reason Paul is so adamant about this is because in church after church, city after city, he was seeing people veering off into another direction. People who once walked or apparently walked with Paul and others toward Christ. 
now walking off in another direction, and Paul could see where it was leading. And his response to this real and authentic and raw, he writes, For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Many walk, not just one or two or a handful Paul could think of, but it was becoming a plague, something all too familiar. Many walk, and they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, he says. Now, in the quote, many Paul is referring to, he's probably talking about the many masses in the world walking away from Jesus in another direction on a wide path. But the gravity of those crowds was pulling away others that once walked with Paul towards Christ. Jesus spoke to the crowds, and as he looked out, he saw a dividing that awaited them, even as they may have walked away from his Sermon on the Mount, like a crowd leaving a huge event, like a concert or a service or performance, all heading out to the parking lot and veering off in different directions. As the crowd Jesus spoke to was packing up to leave at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. The broad, popular, accepted, easy path was not the right one, Jesus said. There's a sweeping movement, it seems, of many in the church shying away from this belief. They wonder how only a small percentage of the world is in God's good graces, and that instead, All will be saved, they believe, or those who aren't will face no eternal punishment. Because God is loving and gracious and good, right? And Jesus' cross broke the curse, so we all get in, right? To shy away from the judgment of God denies the holiness and the righteousness of God. Jesus did pay on the cross for all, and that's why when we reject it, it's so much harsher. It also diminishes the cross of Christ because, well, if death is not such a threat after all, then it diminishes the glory of the cross and what Jesus did for us, the price that he paid. Paul didn't feel pious that he was entering through the narrow gate. He didn't feel privileged that he was in the good group and just write off the others as fodder for the fires of hell. No, what did Paul write? For many walk of whom I've told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Paul was in tears, staining the parchments that were there under house arrest. The guard chained to him, probably wondering what had come over him, this grown man weeping as he tries this, as he writes this letter to friends. It broke Paul's heart that many walked in another direction, and in doing so, they were enemies of the cross of Christ, Wow, enemies, that puts it in perspective. An enemy, that's a term of war. When someone who is is the antithesis of all you stand for, all you seek, their existence threatens yours. We're all either allies of the cross or we are enemies of the cross. And Paul says, weeping, the many walk in a way that shows that they're enemies of the cross. The one hope in the universe, the greatest sign and expression of love, the one redeeming act on which all of eternity rests upon, they are enemies of it. They reject it. They despise it. And Paul doesn't stop just there. He feels the need to articulate this a bit more, to flesh it out and expose all that this really means. Those who are enemies of the cross of Christ, he says this about them, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Just talking about it causes Paul to weep. He's brokenhearted. 
whose end is destruction. The word for destruction is apoleia, and it can mean waste, a wasted life. It can also mean utter destruction, as in a vessel that's broken, or something that you have, like a dish. It can also mean a perishing. Sum it all up, the end is not good for those who are enemies of the cross, whose end is a wasted life. To pursue any other life that does not include the cross is a wasted life. God has created each of us for a purpose, but until we come to the cross and are reconciled to God, we will never know that purpose. We are living for self, for our own purposes. Romans 5.10 says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. When we are reconciled to God, no longer enemies, we're saved in this life too, saved from a wasted life. And we won't get to the end and realize that we wasted the whole thing. But if we're not reconciled to God, well, we can receive the applause of men, we can be noted in the history books, we can be a good person in the eyes of others. We can have wealth and influence and power and prestige, but it can be wasted in the end. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? This end is destruction. It can also mean the destruction of a vessel. So like imagine pottery or a fine china dropping from any considerable height. It shatters upon impact, completely broken and useless. What a tragic end for a vessel created for a purpose. Those who are enemies of the cross of Christ face destruction, the ultimate second death that is talked about in Scripture, as we read in Revelation 21. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Pursuing a life that does not have the cross of Christ intersected at some point, the end is destruction, which is what makes the work of Christ so important. Like Jesus said in Luke 9, 56, For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. But Paul said many walked in a different direction, walking toward destruction, not toward Jesus, and he exposes their motivation. Whose God is their belly, living according to their flesh, their human desires not brought in check under the Spirit. We have such kind neighbors, they're such servants, and they take such good care of us, whether it be watching out for our place if we're out of town, or dropping off smoked barbecue ribs fresh from the smoker, or replacing the starter in my lawnmower. They're the best. Well, a year ago, we were headed out of town for a pandemic road trip, and as we were getting ready to leave, our neighbor brought us a small Ziploc bag of Oreo cookies for the road. How thoughtful, but how evil at the same time. We had not had Oreos in some time. Aaron eats pretty healthy, so I try to as well. And and the healthy kick, it keeps a lot of junk food out of our house. But man, those Oreos, they were evil. We got on such an Oreo kick on that trip. We went through a few bags in a few weeks' time. It was gluttonous. And since then, in the last year, we've pretty much always had Oreos in the house. And all kinds of Oreos, regular Oreos, mint Oreos, red velvet Oreos. Just the other day, we were at Big Lots and we got two bags of gluten-free Oreos. Yes, because they are a thing. A birthday cake flavored bag and a double chocolate fudge or something like that. And we put back the lemon Oreos. When it comes to Oreos, my goodness, it can sometimes be our belly that's leading us. Because while we don't eat these Oreos all the time, on the one or two days a week, we will allow ourselves some. I can't eat just one. One is just a temptation, and I struggle to stop. My God becomes my belly. My belly becomes my God. And were it not for the Spirit and the disapproving looks I get from my wife, I could put away a bag of Oreos in no time at all. 
That's what it's like when our God is our belly. Insatiable appetites. We just want more and more, no holding back. And it may be food, but it can also be our pride, our lust, our success, material things, our anger, our unforgiveness. Some people want drama or drinking or partying or sleeping around or vanity, obsessed with entertainment, living to shop or being driven by anger or, or fear or anxiety. We just do what we feel and are led by emotions or impulses without the Holy Spirit keeping us in check. We're motivated by the flesh and it drives all we do. When Paul observed the world, he wept because most were living to fulfill their carnal desires, their base desires, not seeking after the things of the Spirit. And it leads us on a path to destruction. And apart from the cross of Christ, we can't help it. We need to be born again by the Spirit to live differently. Paul said the cross is key to this transformation that allows us to live differently. Writing in Galatians 5.24, And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Do you struggle with your flesh? Are there drives and desires and binges that take over? The cross can set you free. Your flesh and all its passions and desires can be crucified if you're willing. But that is the problem. Are we willing? Because as Paul says next, much of the world sees nothing wrong with that, that way of living. He says, and whose glory is in their shame. The world is given over and glories in such living. If it feels good, do it. Oh, you do you. Glorifying in things that are shameful and full of regret. Justifying, supporting, and promoting things that God says will destroy us. Sin is not bad for us because God calls it sin. God calls it sin because it is bad for us. He doesn't make rules to rob us of anything good. He calls sin to point to us things that are wrong and things that are bad for us so that we can strive for that which is good. Paul sums it up at the end of verse 19. Who set their mind on earthly things. To set your mind on something. The word in Greek implies to exercise your mind towards something. Exercise. We work towards something. Exercise involves repetition, and it should get easier the more we do it. When Paul says the enemies of the cross set their mind on earthly things, they exercise towards worldly things. And it may be hard at first, your conscience telling you it's not right, but you do it anyway, and the next time, guess what? It gets easier. You're in better shape to sin until finally, well, to be quite frank, you're pretty good at it. When you exercise towards earthly things, you get in shape real fast. It takes over, and you can do it so easily. When Paul looked around, that's what he saw. A world of those who were enemies of the cross. Many had never known Jesus, but had always walked this way, on the broad path leading to destruction from the start. But others had once walked with Paul, but had gone back to the old ways. And his heart broke for them, because he could see that there was what was there on the horizon. James put it this way, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. But Paul recognizes the power of the gospel, what Jesus had done on the cross, writing to the Romans, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly, God saving his enemies through the cross of Christ. Paul dries his tears and finishes the chapter with a promise of hope. Verses 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body and that it may be conformed to his glorious body, 
according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Our citizenship is in heaven. Paul was saying we shouldn't be living according to the desires of this world. We shouldn't be living according to our belly. We shouldn't be walking in such a way to gain this whole world, but lose our soul because our citizenship is in heaven. Now this would ring true, this would be familiar to the people who lived in Philippi, because Philippi was a Roman colony. It was a Roman city. In fact, many retired uh, government officials or military leaders would retire in a place like Philippi because they still had all their rights and privileges as citizens of Rome, even though we're living in some outpost of a town farther away from the capital. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we belong. We don't live there right now, but we keep the rights and the privileges of the children of God as citizens of heaven, including the power of the Holy Spirit and all the riches that have been given to us in Christ that are spoken about in the book of Ephesians. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus, it's been given to us. So why would we walk anyway differently? And what a transformation. It says here that we will eagerly wait for the Savior. When we were once enemies, the transformation that took place, now we are citizens, we actually belong. Not on parole or walking about with ankle monitors, not out on bail, but with a court date hanging over our head. We're citizens, we've been transformed, we're no longer enemies. And we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Eagerly waiting. We live in a world that's very on-demand and it's hard for us to wait for anything. More than 48 hours for our package and we're wondering why we ordered it at all because we like that Amazon Prime. We eagerly wait. As I'm working on this podcast, our new kittens, they're looking at the bedroom door. It's kind of early this morning. I'm out in the living room. I'm preparing some things, preparing this podcast, and they're on the couch. They're content, but they're looking straight at the bedroom door, knowing that very soon my wife is going to stir. And when she does, she's going to come out to see how her little kitties are doing. And they're looking forward to that moment. We look to the door. Jesus stands at the door. Behold, he stands at the door and knock. And we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when we see him, he will transform our lowly body, this lowly fallen body with all its aches and all its pains, all its cravings and the things that it desires that are not good for us. He'll transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. There's a final transformation that works for us. There's a transformation that takes place now as we trust in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit, as we walk with like-minded people who are walking towards the Christ, as we walk that narrow path, which is difficult, we'll be transformed. We'll start to look more like Him. But the final transformation, when this ungodliness, this unholiness, this lowly body, it'll put on incorruption. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're longing for. That's what's been promised to us. And that's what Paul is hoping that they'll look forward to. He may not see them again. He doesn't know his future. But he knows that for those who are in Christ Jesus, he will see them again. They may not recognize each other at first. We don't know what these transformed bodies look like. But Paul knew that a resurrection awaited. And that's what he put his hope in. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the promise of the Holy Spirit. He who seals us as that redeemed property and you will come for us and those who are healed, those who are sealed, Lord, in the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we long for the day. We look forward to that day. We ask that you would help us to be the salt and the light. Lord, we pray for fallen brothers and sisters who are along the path, those who are injured, those who are hurt, those who are confused, those who are deceived, those who are wrestling with sin. Lord, we ask that you might call them back, that you would reveal even that to them, Lord, where they took a wrong step and call them back to repentance and bring them back to the straight and the narrow path. And Lord, strengthen the hands that hang down, strengthen the feeble knees, and help us to walk this path that leads straight unto you. 
we thank you, Lord, that you are the door and that we enter through the cross of the Christ. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.